invite you to pray with me. Father, I pray, we all pray, asking you to still our minds and our hearts and that your spirit would silence us and still us, Lord, that we would hear you speak through your word. And that our responses today would be in faith. And you would be glorified today through your word and through our responses, we pray today. That you'd bless us and build us up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it with me to Matthew's Gospel as we consider overcoming doubt. I spoke on this subject last Sunday morning and want to continue that again today. This will be part two, but uh, I invite you to go to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, it's a familiar story. Some of you know this story as Jesus walking on the waves, and some of you know this story as Peter sinking in the sea. So let me give you a little bit of background before we uh, read the text together. The background occurs... A few years prior to this, before this is written, there is a Jewish tax collector uh, named Matthew who meets Jesus. And in that day, tax collectors were employed by Rome to bring in money through taxes, and tax rates were excessively high. If you think tax rates are high today, they're nothing compared to what they were for people in the Roman Empire which means Matthew, as a tax collector, uh, collected sales taxes on everything bought and sold, and he was also free to charge fees above the taxes that he would keep for himself. Needless to say, while the occupation was very lucrative, it also came with the price of being hated and despised by your own people. Uh, Jewish tax collectors were considered unclean, unclean because of their connectedness to the Romans, and in fact, because they were considered to be unclean and also dishonest, their testimonies were not even allowed in, in a court of law. Matthew, this tax collector, meets Jesus, he hears him, and he, eventually his, his life changes. He's changed, he becomes a new creation, a, a new kind of man, a new kind of husband and dad. He walks away from his career path. He leaves his life of wealth and begins living for a greater purpose. And that purpose is to make Jesus known, to make Christ known. And I'm sure Matthew would have said amen to Paul's testimony to his letter to the Philippians. For in Philippians 3, Paul testifies, For whatever things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish that I may know him. Matthew is a changed man, a new man, writing to convince Jewish brethren to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah, he's the Christ, and then to follow him, to use and spend their lives advancing his kingdom using whatever means they may have 
to advance his purposes on earth. And let me just suggest to you, as a member of Hillcrest Baptist Church, those of us who are saved, who have been changed by Christ, why would we not invest our lives here teaching and praying and serving and giving the Lord our very best? And honestly, some of you have so much to offer. Listen to me. There are many of you here this morning who have so much to offer. You are very talented and God has given you a great mind and intelligence. You have a lot of experience. But there are some of you this morning who are not spiritually engaged. You're here, but you're not really checked in. You're not really engaged. Instead, you're wasting time laying up treasure on this earth instead of treasure in heaven. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Benny and I have been married 39 years. We've raised four kids, gained some life experience, and have learned a few things about God and living. And if I wasn't the pastor of this church, but if I was a member of this church and someone were to approach me and Mindy and ask us, would you all pray and think about getting involved, teaching a class, ministering his word, or connecting with a class to invest in people's lives, to shepherd them and care for them? My response would be, I don't need to pray about that. My response would be, why not do that? Why would I not give God my first fruit, my very best? Why would I not look for some significant way to invest my life in the kingdom of God instead of just kind of being a passive Christian spectator? For if the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us and made us new and changed us, why would we not lay up treasure in heaven and give our very best to him. And I say this in love instead of perhaps playing church. Dilly dallying around with God, dilly dallying around in my relationship with Christ and just taking the easy path. We were in a deacon's meeting a week or so ago and there were some things that were shared and, and there were some challenges. And I remember the end saying to the group, it's the hard stuff that appeals to us. It's the hard stuff, the challenges. I don't, I would never want to serve Jesus and do something easy and insignificant. Because if it's easy and if it's insignificant, it means it probably doesn't really matter. But the hard stuff, the challenging stuff, the stuff that requires something from us would be what appeals what appeals. Matthew is changed upon meeting Jesus. He's new and his life demonstrates. And it seems that during this section of Matthew's gospel, the context is Jesus has devoted now intentionally demonstrating to the 12 more and more of who he really is, of his identity with the aim of building up and strengthening their faith. I want you to notice before we read this text, and if you go back, if you have your Bible, look at 
chapter 14. Look at, and we'll, you don't need to read it, but I'll kind of I'll just want to walk you through a few things. In verses 13 through 21, this is what's leading into the text. Jesus is saddened because he hears of John the Baptist's death. And afterwards, he hears about John being beheaded, John dying. The Bible says he tries to get away by himself. He withdraws from the crowds. However, once his whereabouts become known, the Bible says then multitudes still continue to press on him and set out on foot to be with him. And as was his custom was, due to his compassion for them, he spends most of the day healing their sick. Now, I want to propose to you what Jesus really probably would have preferred doing was just being by himself. You can imagine that he was distraught, upset that John had just been beheaded. But instead, there were ministry demands placed before him, and so he, he serves. And he serves all day long. And the Bible says, as the evening begins to settle in, the 12 approach him and say, Lord, it's been a long day. You have to be tired. We're tired. These crowds have to be tired. It's getting late. Everyone is hungry and needing some dinner or if you're in the South, needing some supper. Why don't you send every way? Tell them just to go home now and get something to eat. And Jesus' response is bizarre. If you have your Bible, look at verse 16. He asks the disciples, why? Why send them away? Why do they need to leave? Why don't you, instead, you brothers, feed them? Why don't you give them all something to eat? And John, in the sixth chapter of his gospel, by the way, this, the feeding of this 5,000, which was probably 10 or 1,000 or more, is the only uh, gospel account that's recorded in all four of the gospels. And John 6 adds a little more detail. When Jesus says, instead of sending them away, why don't we just give them something to eat? And he turns to Philip and he asks, do you know where we can buy bread that all of these people can eat? And the Bible says he asks Philip this question to test him for he already knew what he was going to do. And Philip says, he's a good church, good church guy, we don't have the money. <laughs> There's a ministry need. There's something in front of us, but we don't have the money. And if we did, even if we had enough money, there wouldn't be enough bread even to buy to go around. And then Andrew and known as Simon's Peter's brother, Andrew sees a possibility and he says, Lord, there is a little boy that I've noticed who has a sack lunch, a little brown sack, and his mother has packed in that sack lunch five little barley loaves and a couple of dried fish, and I know it's nowhere near anything that we need, but at least he sees a possibility. And Jesus shifts into actions he, he tells the disciples, I want you to go around, have all of these people have a seat. It was grassy. And so they all are seated, and John records the men by themselves were 5,000. And then Jesus offers prayer before they eat. They confiscate that little boy's sack lunch, taking those barley loaves and those fishes, and Jesus gives thanks and for about they were to receive. And the Bible says... 
in Matthew chapter 14, starting in the 19th verse. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes, and they all ate and were filled. And they then took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained, and those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides the women and the children. So what's the application? Well, none bigger than the 12 disciples further see and receive evidence regarding who Jesus is. Their their faith in God, just like us, will never be any greater than their understanding of who God is. Faith in God will never be any greater than understanding who he is. And the best way to understand who God is is by knowing Jesus. Jesus said, I came to reveal the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We are one. And so that's the message that Jesus is trying to instill within his disciples. He wants them to know who he is, which is the same lesson we see in our text. Begin reading with me in verse 22. So after these thousands are fed, Matthew records, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Immediately after Jesus demonstrates his ability to feed as many as probably 10,000 or more people with a schoolboy sack lunch, in verses 22 through 23, I want you to notice in those two verses, Jesus does four things. It says he made his disciples first get into the boat. It was dark. Late, 
He made them get into the boat. And second, he made them, Matthew records, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Third, he sent the multitudes away. And fourth, he withdraws from everyone to go up on the mountain in the night to be alone. And if you go back at earlier what we saw in verse 13, when Jesus hears that John the Baptist is dead, no doubt hearing how he died, it's a horrible story. The Bible says he got into the boat by himself and went off to a deserted place. And then that verse 23, that's when he became, people found him, began to press upon him. But it's similar to what we find here in verse 23. He tried to get away earlier by himself, and here in verse 23, he finally makes it. He goes up on the mountain by himself, wanting to be alone. Let me ask you, are there times in your life when you hearing bad news or when you're physically and emotionally drained and you just feel like you need to withdraw? You just want to be by yourself. You want to get away from everyone. When you feel like you just need to be alone, to get off into the woods somewhere or go into the, down the hall and lock the bathroom door and escape into a tub of water or just get into your car or your truck and go for a drive just to be alone, to escape, to be by yourself, maybe for a few hours or maybe for a day, maybe for a week to sit on a beach somewhere and listen to the rhythm of the waves just to withdraw for a while. I came across a quote several years ago and it said to keep yourself healthy mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually, we would be wise to, said three things, divert daily, to withdraw weekly and to abandon annually. Jesus models that. He withdraws, he gets away from all the demands, from all the people, from all the other voices, and he just withdraws, getting away to commune especially with the Father. I, I've tried to do that, to divert my mind daily on something maybe simple, but just every day to divert my mind, maybe to get some grass under my feet for about 20 or 30 minutes and just get a wedge and hit some golf balls, just, just to relax and do something even for a few minutes or to withdraw weekly, to take a day off, just to be by yourself or to do some things you need to do, or to abandon annually to go to the beach somewhere and just to be still. Let me ask you, in verses 13 and from verse 23, what is Jesus doing when he's alone? What's it say? Matthew says he's alone in prayer. He's in communion with the Father. Prayer is being in communion with God. It's communication with God. And prayer, being in communion with God, has two parts to it. Two parts. There is a speaking part, ascending up our prayers, our requests, our intercessions, where we offer up and we talk to the Lord. That's prayer, but that's only half of prayer. The other half of prayer is listening to the Lord, receiving what he wants to say to us, to be still and to hear his word. Think about a relationship that you have with someone. If it's a good relationship for both parties, 
then it's not just one person doing all the talking. Well, there's some talking and some listening, some receiving and some offering. That's what prayer is. The way we get along with God and we communicate, we offer up prayers and thanksgiving and petitions and requests and intercession, and, but we also listen. Well, you say, how do you listen to the Lord? By being in the Bible. And so if those are not balanced, then our prayer is just kind of one-sided. He's alone. He sent the disciples away. He sends the crowds away. And here he is in the night spending time with God in prayer. And let me ask you a question. Do you think that Jesus, when he made the disciples get into the boat, that he knew that storm was coming? Out on the Sea of Galilee, do you think Jesus needed to watch the evening news to know what the weather forecast was? No. See, if you and I believe that Jesus was ahead of the disciples, if he knew that storm was coming, then it means that he sent those 12 disciples out on that sea into the midst of that storm on purpose. So why would he do that? Well, at this stage of Jesus's ministry, amen, go back to the context. What's his aim? He's, his aim, his intent is to make sure these disciples continue to grow and understand on who he was. They had just seen him take a sack lunch and feed over 10,000 people with leftovers. They just saw that miracle and Jesus was going to make sure they were about to see some more. And so if Jesus sent them into the storm, do you think it's possible that he's one of the things that he's praying for is for them and with what was about to transpire. It seems obvious to me Jesus is allowing them to be tested. He made them get into the boat, to get out into that storm, to be tested. Sounds like, like one of the disciples, James, it's what he writes about. And in his word, maybe reflecting upon this and some other things, but listen to James chapter one. It's exactly what he gathered from the experience. He says, my brethren, writing to us as believers, consider it or count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of tests. Knowing that these tests are tests of your faith to produce patience and patience to make you perfect and complete, growing, lacking in nothing in your relationship with God. He's testing them. And so Jesus, in all practicality, puts the 12 out into the storm. We see that in verse 24. The boat was in the middle of the sea. And I think it was intentional that it wasn't until it got right in the very middle of the sea that the storm comes upon them. And this boat is thrown around by the waves. The Bible says the wind is boisterous. It's nasty. It's contrary while simultaneously he's alone in prayer. And in the fourth watch of the night, which is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., under the cover of darkness, knowing these guys are in trouble, in danger, knowing already what he's going to do and how he's going to demonstrate his identity, Jesus moves into action, comes down off of that mountainside, probably removes his sandals, and goes for a stroll. Verse 25 says, walking on the Sea of Galilee. 
the same one who created the oceans, who created the seas, the same one who created the laws of gravity, overrules those same laws for his purposes, and he goes out to his disciples. And when the disciples, the Bible says, being overwhelmed with fear, blinded by the winds and the waves, under the cover of darkness, they see glimpses out on the horizon of the sea, and they conclude it's a ghost, it's a spirit. There's no other explanation for it. And as that ghost draws nearer and nearer, verse 27 says that Jesus speaks, offers words of reassurance, needed words, life-giving words in that moment during this time of testing. And he says, brothers, cheer up, it's me. You don't have to be afraid. And then the account gets even better. Verses 28 and 29, Peter says, if it's really you, And he confesses, Lord. That's what it says, Lord. That's a confession. If it's really you, then command me to come to you. Peter doesn't ask, would it be okay? He doesn't ask for permission. Rather, Peter asks a question based upon Jesus' identity. Lord. If it's really you, then by your word, issue the command, and I'm stepping over the side of the boat onto the water and coming to you. And evidently, he made some pretty good progress because when he finally began to start to sink, he was close enough where Jesus could reach out and touch him. Peter's real concern in this is, Lord, if you're Lord, if that's who you are, If it's really you, then I will do whatever you say if you're Lord. Whatever you say, whatever you bid. And Jesus says, come on. And Peter, by faith, with eyes fixed and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, fixed on his lordship, does the unthinkable, steps up, off of his seat, over the edge, the side of that boat, and gripping onto the side of the boat with feet on down into the water, he lets go. And he begins to walk on the waves because he's beginning to grasp and further understand who Jesus is. I would propose to you several years prior to this time he would not have even considered such a thing because he didn't, His faith uh, didn't really understand who Jesus was, but then comes the heart of the story. When Peter began to think a little bit, and the Bible says, and he saw the boisterous wind, means there was a shift in Peter's focus. He shifts from the lordship of Jesus Christ to the test. His focus moves from Jesus to these wind and these waves which was really a shift away from Jesus to himself and what he was up against. And knowing that he cannot walk on water, his self-focus causes him to be afraid, and he begins to think, what in the world am I doing? How did I get in this situation? And he begins to sink, which is what all of us are prone to do. We live and we go through tests, we go through 
difficulties, we go through trials, and our focus shifts from the lordship of Jesus Christ to ourselves and to our own energy and to our own efforts and to our bank accounts and to, all, to ourselves, and we sink in faith. But God, Peter crying out, Lord Jesus, save me, and Jesus does that, and then safe within the Lord's care, Jesus asks Peter a probing question. Why did you start doubting? Why did you doubt? And the account ends with Peter and Jesus into the boat. The wind is calm. Everyone is worshiping Jesus, confessing truly, truly your Lord. You're the son of God. Mission accomplished. So think about it. Put all this together. In less than 24 hours, the disciples witnessed Jesus perform a miracle, taking a little sack lunch, feeding over 10,000 people. Peter, they watched Peter walk in faith on the water. They watched Jesus save him. They experienced Jesus' presence and peace. The, the wind cease, and they confess in unity, Lord, truly, you're the Son of God. Mission accomplished. And as previously noted, all of us at various times of our lives have entertained some doubts. We've all entertained some questions about God, about Jesus, about faith in him, perhaps times when we weren't sure about his word. And I want to propose to you that if you've gone through such doubts and questions, you're in good company. Abraham and Sarah doubted God. God promised to them over and over and over, you're going to have a descendant, you're going to have a son, and years go by, 25 years go by, and God continues to deliver that word to them, and they, they doubt, they give up. Moses, when God calls him, has got doubts about God using him. The children of Israel, after seeing miracle after a miracle, God demonstrating his power and his authority to, and his faithfulness, they had doubts. Those of you in Sunday school this morning studied num Numbers 13. They doubted God and paid a price because of their faithlessness. In the New Testament, all of the disciples had doubts. You remember, Jesus is weary. Oh, how long? How long do I have to be with you? How long is it going to be before you finally grasp who I am? And Thomas, one of the disciples, he's known for one thing, the doubter. You see, the road, the journey to possessing a strong, serving, working faith in God will be littered along the way with doubts and unbelief and times of weak faith. And you know what? I think we would be a lot better off as a church family if we got to a place where we were open and honest about it and willing to get real with each other and being able to confess our doubts and our struggles to each other and say, hey, I'm really, I'm going through this thing in my life and this is painful and I'm struggling and I just, I just need to be real and open up and I need you to encourage me to pray with me about what I'm going through. Instead of acting like if somebody else has doubts, something must be wrong with them when all of us have been through the same kind of thing. In the closing minutes, I want to consider with you what can you do, what can I do to move from doubt, to move from unbelief to stronger faith? What are the keys for having a growing faith? The, Paul writes to the Romans, from faith to faith to faith to faith where it just continues to build and grow and get stronger. 
Let me give you, first of all, a definition of faith. It's the simplest definition of faith that I know. And I know Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things for, the conviction of things unseen. But just, I heard this several years ago from a guy named Elmer Towns. And he said this, faith is affirming that the word of God is true. Faith is affirming the word of God is true. Faith is applicable to every area of your life. We, faith refers to a past commitment. When we began living by faith, when did that happen? When you started living by faith. Well, it happened when you heard the gospel and the hearing of the gospel brought forth faith. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And so we hear, we heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit began to speak and draw and convict us and enliven us and wake us up, bringing forth faith in us to trust Christ. And so to overcome and overcome doubts and to grow stronger, it begins through a personal relationship through faith in Jesus. A conversion, a beginning of new life like Matthew. And then faith also refers to our present conduct. Not just to a past commitment, but a present conduct. In other words, faith has continuing effects in us. Romans 1.17, the just, those who've been justified shall live by faith. Those who have put a their trust in Christ, begin to live by faith. So faith is not a one-time event that occurred at our salvation, but rather it is a constant corrective to our conduct. Practically, as followers of the Lord Jesus, we live by faith in every area of our life. We live by faith in every area. Think, think about any area of your life this morning. Your career, your job, we're to live by faith. My marriage, I need to live by faith. Certainly not feelings. <laughs> live by faith. In my family, living by faith. In my health, I live by faith. Affirming that the word of God is true. I'm believing God who you are, believing God what you say, and so that's what I stand upon in all areas of my life. And then finally, faith refers to our future confidence. Mentioned Hebrews 11. The assurance of things that we hope for, the evidence or the conviction of things that we can't see but we know by faith are true. A runner, when competing, keeps his or her mind and their eyes fixed on the finish. And so you and I as well, we live by faith. The Bible says, yes, our eyes are fixed on Jesus running the race that he sets before us, casting aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us, Finishing our course, looking forward to the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to us on that day. That's our focus. And so closing, let me share with you some practical considerations for defeating doubt. Number one, we need to spend time alone with Jesus. Time alone with Jesus. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually, get, get alone with the Lord. And I would encourage you when you're alone with the Lord to examine God's creation, to watch waves, to count the colors of a sunrise, to go out and look, gaze into the night stars, to sit atop of a mountaintop or to walk into a desert. You see, God who spoke all of those into existence, that same creator knows you and cares for you. 
David in the 19th Psalm said the heavens declare the glory of God. And he wondered in the vastness of all of God's great creation, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? God, how could you even know me? How could you be so aware even of me? I believe it would do every dad good to be able to watch his son or his daughter come into this world. And like the psalmist, to declare in wonder, you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. Paul said, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, even his eternal power and his Godhead. We need to spend time alone with the Lord Jesus. And second, we need to develop a robust, disciplined prayer life. Talking to the Lord, listening to the Lord, meditating upon God, who he is, and meditating upon his word, hiding his word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Third, we need to be in community. Being in community, surrounding myself with brothers and sisters in Christ who know me and I know them and establishing Christian friendships for support and care. So encouraging to hear faith stories, to hear stories of how God's worked in their lives. When, when uh, what's her name, was reading the testimony of Jack? Georgian? That's a faith story. Hearing how God has worked in that little boy's life. Listen, we're not ever connected to people. We're not in relationships. We don't hear those kinds of stories. Being in community, Hebrews 10, 23 and 25. Just listen to these verses about being in community. The writer says, let us hold fast our faith. Let us hold fast our hope without wavering. For he who promised us is faithful and then let us, plural, consider one another, consider each other, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as has become the manner of some. Being connected, being in community. Read through the early church in Acts chapter 2, and it, they, were in connect, they were connected, they were in relationship, meeting each other's homes and having meals together, praying together, and Gathering and studying the word together, being connected will certainly build your faith. Fourthly, specifically pray and ask God to give you more faith. Ask him to faith. You remember in Luke 17, 5, Jesus' disciples pray and say, Lord, would you increase our faith? We saw this last Sunday. You remember the dad who had faith but honestly, honestly acknowledged that his faith was weak and so he prayed and said, Lord, I, I have faith, I believe, but it's weak. Help my unbelief. Pray and ask him to strengthen your faith. Number five, go through Bible sto stories and study the scriptures. Those of you who studied Numbers 13 today or taught Numbers 13, there's some lessons in there about faith. It, it speaks to us. It applies to us. Exercise your faith. Put your faith into operation. Make it active. For example, obey God. Let go of disobedience. Think about some area of your life where you know you're in disobedience to God. It could be financially. It could be in one of these other areas of prayer, not spending time with God. It could be harboring a bad attitude towards somebody and you're hanging on to some grudge, don't want to forgive somebody. Step out in obedience. 
Exercise your faith. And say, Lord, I'm going to step. Like Peter, Lord, if that's you, if you're Lord, I'm going to step out and be obedient to your command. And finally, I would say to you, when doubts come, worship. Instead of just allowing doubtful, fearful thoughts and feelings and ideas to go through your head over and over and over, get along with God and just worship the Lord. Praise Him. Sing to Him. Remember Paul said to the Philippians, and he's writing this from a Roman prison cell about to be executed, and he knows that because he writes Timothy, and he says, my, the time of my departure is near. He knows he's getting ready to die, and what does he say? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let all men know your moderation, your gentleness, for the Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord in the midst of tests and trials. God will use that to strengthen your faith and to move you from doubt to faith, from unbelief to belief. Let me, let me pray with you.